normally at this moment I say the children are dismissed, but that would cause mass pandemonium. So we won't do that this time. Just want to share some thoughts with you this evening. Song that you know by heart, and I, if I if I am a betting man, we're probably going to sing this later. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. It is the most famous Christmas song, the most famous Christmas hymn, most famous now, in fact, for hundreds of years. But long before Silent Night came along, God himself wrote the original Christmas songs. Four of them, in fact. One was performed by angels, whether the song was sung or given as a poem, proclaimed. The other three were performed, prophetically proclaimed would be maybe more accurate, by three up-and-coming stars of the Christmas story. These songs were performed by Mary, the mother of Jesus, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and Simeon, the old Jewish man who had been promised by God that he would see Messiah before he died. Now, for the past several Sundays, we've been looking at these three birth songs of Christ. They're all found in the Gospel of Luke. And so we'd like to just return to those. And if you have your Bible, it's okay if you don't, but if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 1. And I committed to myself that I would read all three of these songs each time we went through them to impress them on our hearts. Luke chapter 1. And we begin with Mary's song, which begins in verse 46. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. In Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins by the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then Simeon's song is found in Luke chapter 2 beginning in verse 28, when old Simeon came upon the little family with the 40-day-old Jesus. 
Verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Now, why are these songs, these three songs found in Luke's gospel? Luke was a Gentile writing to Gentiles that they might have confidence that what they have heard about the Lord Jesus Christ is in fact true. And so we found that in these three songs, they have a unique characteristic, and that is that they're almost entirely made up of Old Testament quotations and references and citations. What this means is that Luke, in recording these Holy Spirit-inspired songs, is giving Gentiles like you and like me the proper Old Testament context that we need. That is the context to understand the setting and the importance of the birth of Christ. And so these songs tell us what you need to know beyond the manger. That the birth of Jesus Christ was not just a random event in time and space that just happened. And we identified nine themes which tell us what we need to know beyond the manger. But as I said this morning... These songs don't just tell you what you need to know beyond the manger. They tell you what you need to know to be part of Christ's future kingdom. Yes, these themes that we saw set the stage for the birth of Christ. But the three songs are loaded with implications for the second coming of Christ as well. Now, we saw these themes, and we won't go over all of them again, but I just want to remind you, we saw the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation, the faithfulness of God, Gentiles, the might and mercy of God in defeating the proud and exalting the humble, the coming of a kingly Messiah, and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with King David. Well, tonight, I simply want to summarize the implications for a Christ-focused future that all nine of these themes give to us. And turn with me, if you have your Bible, if you don't, that's fine, to the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. Because we see all nine of these themes fulfilled in Christ in this final book. The first theme we see is the glory of God. The glory of God. We saw in Mary's song that her song magnifies, her soul magnifies, worships the Lord. That his glory causes her to rejoice. We saw the theme of the glory of God in Zechariah's song. He opens with a proclamation that the Lord God of Israel is worthy to be called blessed, to be called glorious. And we saw that Simeon's entire song was a blessing toward God, that he has sent Christ. And in verse 32 of Luke 2, he says, for glory. And so we see the theme of the glory of God as setting the context of the birth of Christ. But the glory of Christ isn't found completely just in the birth of Christ. It doesn't reveal him in his full glory. The fullest glory of Christ is revealed for a future time, a time yet to be. We see this in Revelation chapter 1. Follow along with me in verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. 
And the glory of Christ was so overwhelming to the Apostle John that he fell at the feet of the Lord Jesus as one who was dead. And Christ confirms that he is the same one who came to earth. Continuing on in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. As a matter of fact, this concept of the glory of God is spoken of four times in Revelation, 14 times rather, all focused on Christ, that he is the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God. Christ receives this glory. Look at Revelation chapter 5 with me. Revelation 5, who is worthy of glory? Beginning in verse 12. There are myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So the glory of God is ultimately revealed not just at the birth of Christ, but in the future glory, glorified Christ. It's the second theme we looked at in the three songs, and that is the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God made with Abram, with Abraham. And in this covenant, God promised that he would raise up a chosen nation, the nation of Israel, who would be the means to bless all the nations of the world through a singular offspring, a singular seed, a male offspring of Abraham. God was going to extend his blessing to every people group through Jesus Christ, born to Israel, under the promises made to the very first Jew, who is Abraham. Mary remembered the Abrahamic covenant in her song. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Zechariah remembered the Abrahamic covenant to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. And Simeon remembered the Abrahamic covenant. He said that God prepared salvation, quote, in the presence of all peoples. This is the promise to Abraham that all nations would be blessed through him and through his seed. And in the book of Revelation, we see the outwork and we see the result of God's promises to Abraham through Christ. We see this in Revelation 21. If you flip over a couple of pages. In Revelation 21, God promises Abraham a chosen nation, and this nation would have land. This is part of the Abrahamic covenant going all the way back to Genesis 12, Genesis 13, 15, 17, 21, 22. All throughout the Bible and even in modern times, there is a battle for the control of one little tiny real estate piece of real estate, and that is Jerusalem. Zechariah tells us that when Christ returns, where is he coming to? He's going to land in the same spot from which he left, a little mountain just outside of Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives. And according to Ezekiel, where is Christ going to rule when he returns? He's going to rule from his throne in Jerusalem. Why? Because God promised that land to Abraham. And after the thousand-year reign of Christ and all evil on earth has been eradicated and wiped out, what will be the featured star of the new earth? Well, we see the featured star of the new earth in Revelation 21, verse 2. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. By the way, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham looked forward to this day. And we said this this morning, that Abraham wasn't so much looking forward to going up to heaven. He was looking forward to heaven coming down to earth, right to his land. That's exactly what Revelation 21 says is going to happen. The very place that Christ will rule and reign. In fact, in verse 10, we see, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, it's a diamond, clear as crystal. So we have the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in Christ. The third theme that we saw in these three songs, the theme of Israel. Mary remembered Israel. She said that God, in sending Christ, has, quote, helped his servant Israel. Zechariah remembered Israel. He blessed the God of Israel. He called them his people, that Jesus is the mercy promised to our fathers, to his people. And Simeon remembered Israel, that the coming of Christ is for glory to your people, Israel. Now, I don't know how familiar with the book of Revelation that you might be, but the book of Revelation is a very Jewish book. The church basically isn't mentioned between chapters 3 and chapters 19 or so. Turn with me to Revelation 12. Revelation 12 it is very, very much about the final restoration of Israel through Christ as God has promised. Revelation 7 shows the raising up of 144,000 blessed evangelists. And guess who they are? They're all Jews. And they're in the great tribulation. They're proclaiming the gospel of Christ under God's protection. And then Revelation chapter 11, just to show that this is a very Jewish book, it it tells the story of God sending two men who very well could be Moses and Elijah. This is yet to happen in the future. Two witnesses, where to? To Jerusalem, to proclaim the gospel of Christ for the last three and a half years of the great tribulation. And now in Revelation 12, we see the drama of Israel And Israel is portrayed as a woman bringing forth the Son of God who is targeted by Satan who is portrayed as a dragon. And so we see the drama unfold beginning in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And behold, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now, all of that has happened already. But now, in the midst of the Great Tribulation, when Antichrist forsakes his treaty with Israel, as prophetically recorded in Daniel chapter 9, all of a sudden, Jews are in danger, especially the ones who would follow Christ. And so what does God do? God rescues them. Look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, for three and a half years to be cared for by God until what? Until Christ returns to come back to them 
And why is God saving them? Why does he care? Because the prophecy of Zechariah 12, verse 10 is being fulfilled. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The child was born to Israel, was taken away, but will be returned right when God is helping Israel repent. There's a fourth theme we saw in these three songs, and that is salvation from sin. Salvation from sin. Mary says in her song that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. She wants to be among those who fear God. Zechariah tells us that in Christ, God has redeemed his people. He's brought salvation. He's brought the knowledge of salvation. He's brought the forgiveness of their sins. And Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation. The outworking of this salvation is seen in Revelation as well. Turn to Revelation 7. In Revelation 7, this is an interlude, kind of a break in the narrative of the pouring out of God's judgment on the earth. And all of the saved of all the ages, including those martyred in the Great Tribulation, are standing at the throne of God and they're celebrating salvation in Christ. And look with me at verse 9 of chapter 7. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Notice who is there. A great multitude from every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. In fact, Revelation 14, verse 6, pictures an angel making certain that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed, quote, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And this salvation isn't just being worked out in people, it's being worked out in all of creation. The new heaven and the new earth will have qualities that we can't even grasp. In fact, it's been proven scientifically that for the new Jerusalem to be built and to withstand the forces of physics as it is now, we actually have to see God change the laws of physics in order for new Jerusalem to not crumble under its own weight. And of course he can do that. He made them up in the first place. There's no reason he can't add a few more. All of creation, all of those who would trust in Christ, in fact, Revelation 23, 22, verse 3 says, there will no longer be anything accursed, no sin nature, no more cruelty, no more death, no more hardship, no more decay. That is called salvation, bringing back that which was lost. There's a fifth theme in these three songs, and that is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. Mary said that God is faithful from generation to generation and that he has remembered mercy. Zechariah said that God is faithful to do all that he spoke by his prophets from of old. And Simeon said that God is doing all according to his word. He's faithful. And in the book of Revelation, we see the faithfulness of God worked out in the coming Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1 Verse 5, in John's introduction, he calls Jesus the faithful witness. In in Revelation 3, verse 14, Jesus is called the faithful and true witness. And then as Christ prepares to return to earth, Revelation 19 actually gives him proper names. 
He is faithful and true. Why do we call Christ faithful? He was faithful to obey the will of the Father in coming to earth as a child. He was faithful to minister perfectly among God's people. He was faithful to heal the sick and lift up the downtrodden. He was faithful to go willingly and quietly to the cross and to suffer on behalf of mankind to pay for your sins and to pay for mine. He was faithful to intercede on our behalf even right now at this moment. And he's faithful to ensure the success of the church until he returns. And he will be faithful to his word because he promised he would return again. And Revelation makes that clear. He is the one who is faithful and true. And in our three Christmas songs, we saw a sixth theme, and that is the theme of the Gentiles. The Gentiles, and this is important to us because we are them. We are the Gentiles. Mary spoke of the offspring of Abraham, and we saw that this includes his spiritual offspring, Gentile Christians. Zechariah spoke of Messiah coming to the area of Galilee where the Gentiles are the ones who sat in spiritual darkness. But Christ would come, as he said, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And Simeon said that Christ came to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. We see this worked out in Revelation. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation 5. This is also part of the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. But the future blessing of the nations is spoken of in Revelation many, many times. In Revelation 5, the the raptured and resurrected church, they fall down before the risen Christ Jesus. And in Revelation 5, verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. We see this also in Revelation 15. Flip over a couple of pages with me. Revelation 15. As the great tribulation is reaching its really most climactic horrifying moments in the final weeks of the seven year judgment time when God is about to pour out the final seven judgments on earth, there's a celebration in heaven of all the nations in heaven who will shortly be coming back to earth with Christ. And so the celebration happens in in chapter 15. All those who have been martyred by Antichrist and stood firm for Christ all the way to the death will sing And here's what they sing in Revelation 15, beginning in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the what? Nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And after Christ has reigned on earth for a thousand years and the dead are judged and the new Jerusalem is on the new earth, Revelation 21 verse 24 says that the nations will walk by the light of new Jerusalem and into Jerusalem will come the tribute of the nations and that the tree of life will be there for the healing of the nations. Every nation, every people group, every language group represented in the kingdom of God. And I would say that God is so specific that we could divide this out. This is not just everybody who speaks English or speaks Spanish. I mean, in America alone, we have to divide those who speak English and those from Louisiana 
And so he's going to save all of them. Every dialect. What a glorious promise that the church of Jesus Christ will be successful in its mission program because of God's power. And why is God going to do this? Why is he going to save people from every nation, every people group, every language group, every tribe, every tongue? Because once upon a time, God made a promise to a man named Abraham that through him and through his singular seed, one male descendant, every nation on earth would be blessed. There's a seventh theme we saw, the might of God to defeat the proud and the mercy of God to exalt the humble. Turn with me a couple of pages to Revelation 19. At the end of the great tribulation, we see Christ preparing to return in one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He will perfectly judge. The, the armies of earth arrayed against them are about to literally meet their maker. And by the way, not one innocent person will be harmed in Christ's attack on earth. Zechariah 14 says that Christ will make a way of escape for them. Before he comes to earth, Christ has the audacity to wear the crowns of every nation. Look at verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his Head are many diadems, many crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He has a new name. No one but himself knows it. This is likely the name that Philippians 2 speaks of, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. I personally believe that it's not the name Jesus that will be what we bow to. It will be a brand new name that nobody has heard until he returns and he utters this glorious name, which I don't know how long it'll take to say. It might take like 25 minutes to say his name because it will encapsulate all that he is. And at that name, every knee will bow. And before he comes to earth, he clothes himself in a robe that is dipped. Some Greek manuscripts say splattered with the blood of his enemies that he's about to shed. Verse 13 tells us this. He is clothed in a robe dipped or splattered in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, those arrayed in, in fine linen, white and pure, where they're identified as the raptured and resurrected church in, earlier in chapter 19. Verse 14 says, The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And now the word of God, which is life to the repentant, is about to be death to the proud. In verse 15, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, that is his word, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. The idea of ruling with a rod of iron doesn't mean that he's going to he's going to rule as in from a throne. It means he's going to overcome them with a rod of iron. It is the act of striking them down. And what will happen in this very short battle when the word of God made flesh speaks the word of God? Zechariah 14 verse 12 tells us, and this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet and their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Merry Christmas. <laughs> but this is what Christ will do to those who will not follow him. 
But when Christ comes, he also comes to exalt the humble. To exalt the humble. He himself promises that those who believe in him and have survived the great tribulation, he makes this promise in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's an eighth theme that sets our understanding of the birth of Christ, but also looks forward to his second coming. And that is the coming of a kingly Messiah. The coming of a kingly Messiah. Mary is pregnant with the kingly Messiah when she offers her song, so she doesn't even need to talk about it that much. Zechariah celebrates that his son, John the Baptist, will be the one to, he says, go before the Lord to prepare his ways like a forerunner goes before a king. He calls this coming king the sunrise who will visit us from on high. And then Simeon in his song, he calls the kingly Messiah the one who is a light for revelation and the very glory of God himself. But we see this in Revelation 11 also. Turn with me to Revelation 11. Now, in Revelation, we don't get a more kingly figure than Jesus ever. I've already mentioned that he'll symbolically wear the crowns of every nation. But one of, the most, one of the most famous verses in all of Revelation and really in the whole Bible, in fact, it's a verse so familiar that you're going to sing a tune in your own head when I read this verse. It is Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And just before Christ returns, heaven is bursting with anticipation. Revelation 19 verse 6 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. We said this morning that Jesus didn't come to just be some sort of Jewish Gandhi or some sort of Dr. Phil figure or a Mother Teresa figure. He came as a king, but his first time his coming was to gather kingdom citizens. His second time will be to take his throne. And of course, this kingly Messiah can reign because of the ninth theme we found in these three songs, and that is the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised King David that the descendant of his would rule Israel and by extension rule the world forever and ever. Jesus was born to Mary, a descendant of David, giving Jesus the biological right to rule. And Jesus was born to the family of Joseph, his foster father, a descendant of David, giving Jesus the legal right to rule. Zechariah's song most clearly highlights this when he celebrates that God has, quote, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. And the book of Revelation drives this very important point home to us. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. Now in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus is giving instruction to seven churches in Asia Minor. 
And in his speech to the church of Philadelphia, John is instructed to write to them, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Jesus has the key of David. What does a key mean? Well, in the Bible, a key is symbolic of owning something, of having authority. Jesus is the heir to the throne. He is the true Davidic king. He has the key to the palace, so to speak. The church in heaven emphasizes the Davidic covenant and how important this is. Flip over a page to Revelation 5 with me. And the church understands the importance of the Davidic covenant. Revelation 5 And the story here is that there is a a mighty scroll that needs to be opened and the seals need to be broken and and John doesn't understand who can open this scroll. And so he receives some encouragement. Revelation 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so we have Jesus himself speaking of himself as the the key of David. We have the church in heaven speaking of Jesus as the root of David, but Jesus himself takes up this theme again at the very end of the book that he claims to be the sole qualified heir to the throne of Israel and to the throne of the earth. And in in the second to last statement that Jesus ever makes in our Bible, he makes sure to drive this point home. Flip over with me to Revelation 22. We'll look at verse 16. The the theme of the Davidic covenant is so important that it's one of the last things that Jesus says to us through Scripture. Revelation 22, verse 16. He makes certain we know who he is. This is emphatic in Greek. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now, this is interesting. He says he's the root of David. What does that mean? It means he is David's ancestor. How can he be David's ancestor? He's the cause of David. Why? Because he's God. But he also says that he's the descendant of David. Why? Because he is a man. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can say, I am the root of David. I am the descendant of David. There is no more better qualified king. There is no more qualified ruler. So the themes that we see in the three human birth songs, the the glory of God, the Abrahamic covenant, Israel, salvation, faithfulness of God, Gentiles, the might and mercy of God, the coming of a kingly Messiah, and the fulfillment of a Davidic covenant, they don't just set the birth of Christ in its proper context. They set all of redemptive history and the future reign of Christ in its proper context. Because when the dust settles and Christ is reigning on the earth, having judged and condemned the rebellious, when he sits down on his Davidic throne as the kingly Messiah who hands out the might and mercy of God to Gentiles and to Israel because he is faithful to give the salvation according to his promise in the Abrahamic covenant, all for the glory of God, then and only then, God will receive all glory and there will be peace between God and And between mankind, incidentally, that's what the fourth birth song in Luke tells us, the song that the angels say 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus Christ came first as a baby. The next time he comes, it will be as a judge of the rebel to establish his kingdom with those who have trusted in him. And yes, we love to sing the beautiful hymn, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. Round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. But Psalm 150 says that in a future day, everything that has breath will praise the Lord with trumpets and lutes and harps and tambourines and dancing and strings and pipes and cymbals and loud clashing cymbals. I think someday we're more likely to sing thunderous day holy day sing a psalm our debt christ did pay round yon glorious king on his throne praise the son for the grace he has shown may your glory increase our wonderful prince of peace i think silent night might be a distant memory then all that stands between you and an eternity apart from god is the lord jesus christ and he can either be the judge who swipes away your hope into eternal damnation, or he can be the Savior who wipes away your sin and brings you into eternal glory. And the choice really is yours. Why do we say Merry Christmas? Honestly, we can only say Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas because we have a mighty, mighty, mighty King, and that is Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer and my hope that you not only celebrate Christ in the manger, but do you celebrate Christ as the king of your own heart, as your savior and the king that you look forward to coming? Because the Bible says that those who do not know him will turn away in shame at his coming. And may that not be you. And the Bible also says that those who love him look forward eagerly to his appearing once again. That is my prayer for you. Our Father, we thank you for these glorious three songs that delight us, that remind us of the birth of Christ. But they also give us a, a glimmering hope, Lord, a, a, a look ahead at the amazing future that is before those who would trust in Christ. And Lord, it's my prayer for all who are here, particularly those who consider themselves religious, maybe those who believe in God, maybe even who believe that Jesus exists, maybe even believe that he's a savior that they would be reminded that Jesus, when he came to earth, yes, he came as a cute baby. But when he grew up, he said, I did not come to bring peace to earth. I came to bring a sword. He came to divide those who would be faithful to him and those who would not. Lord, it's our prayer that the Spirit of God would move even now to save those who have been religious, but who have not truly known Christ as Savior, who have not repented, who have not obeyed the call of Christ himself to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We thank you for the, the glorious record of the birth of Christ we have in our Bible, but we also thank you for the glorious promises of his second coming, which we ought to look forward to with great anticipation. For it is in the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords that we pray. Amen and amen.